This is Dave Barr, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Today we're going to talk with Rene Cormier, the author of The University of Gravel Roads, a great travel book about his four-year motorcycle adventure around the world. Stick around. I spoke with Rene Cormier over Skype, and you'll have to excuse the little bit of rough audio in here as Skype was giving us some problems when we talked, but it's well worthwhile. I mean, Rene is a fantastic guy, and he's got some really unique answers um, for our questions. Very interesting guy to talk to, and the book, The University of Gravel Roads, is absolutely fantastic. And I may have stumped him right off the bat with my first question when I asked him to give his name and describe what he does. Well, the name part is easy. That's Rene Cormier. And what I do is, uh, it falls roughly into two camps. The biggest thing that we do is guided motorcycle touring organization in southern Africa that, that keeps us busy through half of the year. And our, our second thing that we do is we do a lot of inspirational speaking and speaking about global travel to other motorcycle dealers and rallies and interested folks and sometimes that's banks and sometimes that's insurance companies and but that's it all revolves around motorcycling and that's what we spend the most time doing. Renee, you have a fantastic book here the called The University of Gravel Roads Global Lessons from a Four Year Motorcycle Adventure. Give us an overview. The trip itself started in Vancouver and initially, I thought I had enough money for a three-year around-the-world trip. And my budget was 25 bucks a day. So that's, that's how much I allowed myself for fuel, accommodation, a little bit of internet time, um, borders, some miscellaneous money for borders. But 25 bucks a day was my budget in, in U.S. dollars, if it matters. And two and a half years into the trip, I'm having a wonderful time, but I've only gotten as far as South America. And I still need the rest of the world to go and see. So after two and a half years to, to South America, I came back to Edmonton to work for a year and then shipped the motorcycle to Africa and spent another two years going through Africa, Yemen, Oman, Dubai, Pakistan, Iran, that's Central Asia, up to Russia, Mongolia, South Korea. And then in South Korea, it had been five years since I had started, so I sent the motorcycle back to Long Beach, California and drove home. So that, that trip itself was four and a half years moving in a five and a half year period and 154,000 kilometers was the, the total mileage for the trip. Everything on the same bike as well. I had a little BMW F650, the single cylinder, single spark plug, Rotax engine bike, which had been a brilliant little bike for me. And initially I had thought about bringing a bigger bike. I had an 1150 GS and I had an old R100 GS, the older model. I was driving a lot of my friends bonkers, which one to take of those, the 1150 or the 100. And then uh, I, realized that um, a, a new girlfriend that I had just started to date at the time wanted to come on the trip as well. And she's very short. So we went to the BMW dealer. The only bike that fit her was lowered 650. So I sold those other big bikes and got the 650. It's one of the lessons that I had read on the internet of people, two people traveling on two bikes in weird places is take the same bike or take bikes that are as identical as you can with one another. So that's what I did. And I've become, since then, a very big fan of that middle-sized bike for international travel. I think the big bikes are excessive in many categories and uh, not the ideal choice for multi-year extended international travel. 
What was Rene Cormier like as a kid? Uh, when you go back and you think of your childhood, were you adventurous, uh, gregarious? Did you get yourself into trouble? I mean, what, what made you the type of person that would get on a motorcycle and disappear, you know, traveling the world for, for four years? Ooh, that's a good question. Actually, no one's uh, we've done a lot of interviews, but no one's ever asked that one. Um, full points, ten points, Griffin. <laughs> uh, as a as a kid, you know, well, I can say that from our family, we've got four kids in the family. Uh, um, we have a girl, boy, boy, girl. I'm the oldest of two boys. And apart from my older sister, who got out of school and went went to university and got a job and had had kids and have a family. The other three kids all traveled. So I traveled quite extensively. My little brother worked for Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. He traveled extensively. My little sister traveled a lot by backpack. She actually leads us uh, in the in the country count competition. She's up over 90. And, and my mother would always encourage us to go traveling. When, she, when I was 17, she came back from uh, being in the car somewhere. She said, there's there's an ad on the radio that says that there's an airline ticket to Mazatlan on sale. She says, you should go. I said, but I'm 17. You know, I've never been anywhere at that point. So I said, okay, I'll go. So I bought the ticket, but no hotel, no, no, no idea of what to expect when I arrived there. I, I flew to Mazatlan. The plane arrived at midnight. And then you can sort yourself out. How do you get from the airport to town? What hotel do you stay at? Where do you eat? Where do you, how does the money work? And it seems quite bold now to think back at it. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how many parents would send a 17-year-old to, to Mexico um, with zero planning. But it worked out fine. And uh, that started uh, a long chunk of, of traveling for me. I went to the Woodstock Union in a Volkswagen van traveling across country. And all of our my brothers and sisters would travel a lot. So we would talk a lot about traveling and where are you going and what are you going to see? But as far as motorcycle traveling, the longest trip I had done before taking off around the world was a month long trip to Alaska. I come into the motorcycling world quite late. I, most of my working career, I was in the bicycle side. So bicycles, working in a bike shop was what I did for, for spare cash. And when I moved to Vancouver, British Columbia from Edmonton, which is where I grew up, I, I always immediately defaulted to the bike shop, and um, it was the the job I knew. It was a place I can get spare parts for bike racing, and and uh, and then the bicycle industry took me up to the job that I left to travel around the world. And at that point, I was working in Colorado Springs, Colorado, for a, a mountain bike company called Rock which is pretty well known in the mountain bike world. And from there, I left that job and went traveling. So as a youngster, you know, lots of traveling, lots of uh, two-wheeled adventure, but most of it was on the pedal the pedal side, not the engine side. You just, I just couldn't afford it back then. The bicycle industry is not a very high-paying industry in the, in the positions that I was at for most of my bike career. But the motorcycles are so much more fun to ride, yeah. We just did a show on defining the word adventure. And I'm curious talking to you, uh, especially with your, your ideas of life, what you picture adventure being. I'll tell you, the, the dictionary defines it, as I'm sure you know, as an unusual and exciting, typically hazardous experience or activity. How do you define adventure? Jeez, that's a good question. Well, 
I can say that the, the definition is a, is a floating target, isn't it? And my my definition definition of adventure before I left would certainly be different from what it would have been on the return of my trip. And I left as a very nervous rider, and, and and any part of this thing was adventurous for me. I didn't know how the bike works over multiple years. I didn't know how the paperwork worked over a multiple year trip. Um, but once you learn it, the, the the thing that appears adventurous must shift a little bit to more unknown stuff. And I think you become more comfortable with traveling. You become more comfortable with yourself. You become more comfortable with trusting yourself that you're going to make the right decision for, for whatever the needs a decision-making process. Uh, uh, but that is, uh, yeah, that's a tricky one. What would be my advantage? It, might, it would need to be something that gets back to doing something that you haven't done before or you're unsure of how it's going to turn out. I think that would be would be my my definition of it. Something that we've done time and time again, and I think this is why adventure motorcycle riders pull a lot of people from from areas where there's a lot of repetition in the world. You know, a nine-to-five job that's been at it for a number of years where there is not a lot of new stuff happening. I mean, if you think about it, riding a motorcycle in a different country, especially over a long period of time, there's so many unknowns that go along with that, that it is um, it's an overwhelming task. And maybe that's why it appears to be such a cool thing for, for folks to to um, do videos on and, and websites and traveling and such. And there, there's so much overwhelming stuff that is new, and, and that is adventure for me. When you're going to place yourself intentionally in an area where you have never been and you don't know how you're going to get it sorted out. And then, and it, it always gets it always gets sorted out. This is kind of the good news, happy ending to the story of of the definition of adventure. It'll always get sorted out. The problem though is when you're inside the adventure, when you're in the middle of a rainstorm at night with a flat tire, you, you just don't know how it's going to get sorted out. But if you're in that spot and the rain's coming down and, and both your tires are flat and you've got no more tubes and no no more patch kits, if you, you Put yourself in that spot and you think, okay, seven days from now, I'm going to look back on this and laugh because it will have been sorted out by then. But you just don't know how in the world you're going to get from there to a week later. Um, and that's, I've been in that spot and I've been sleeping in a ditch at midnight because I couldn't get some parts fixed on the bike. And it's a funny thing to think about, but it always gets sorted out. That's, that's kind of the cool thing. And then to extrapolate that over a longer trip, you've got days where all you do is, is wonder how something's going to get solved, and then you solve it. Wondering how this route's going to get solved, and then you solve it. Wondering how this repair on the motorcycle is going to get solved, and then you solve it. We, I don't think we have enough exposure to that in our, in our world here, in, in the default world, the 9-5 world with two-eastification kind of world. And part of the, the learning... And that for, becomes your habit um, for, for the way you run your trip, the, for the rest of your trip after that. I don't know if it becomes a habit that, well, I suppose it does because that's all motorcycling is in different countries is your problem solving. You're problem solving routes, you're problem solving accommodation, fuel, repair, internet stuff. And you get good at it because you get a lot of practice at it. But you also become very trusting in yourself and getting that stuff sorted out. And, and that I don't think we get enough of in our world, especially when you, you get to a place where you're on a mountain pass uh, you don't know which road to take. Um, there's a storm coming in, like sort of a 
put yourself in a difficult situation and maybe you're not feeling well physically, you've got a tummy bug or something. Um, but you need to get yourself out of there. There's no one that you can phone. There's no one that can come and pick you up. There's no one that can come up the trailer and collect you and bring you down. You've got yourself into this pickle and you must get yourself out. It is the world's best activity for being, to realizing that you are in control of your life for better or for worse. And you can screw it up terribly by making bad decisions or you can turn it into a string of marvelous events. And I mean, that's my wish for all people who ride motorcycles overseas or anywhere, really. But going overseas and sorting out your travel on your own, it's a, it's a lovely exercise in, um, in responsibility and accountability. Because it's funny, people would ask me if I travel with the satellite phone on, on this big trip. And I said, no. And, but if you think about it, who am I going to phone? You know, so you're stuck on a path somewhere. The motorcycle's broken down. Who are you going to phone? What are you going to tell them? You know, I'm, you just must sort your shit out. Uh, and it's and it's great. We there are so many uh, fail-safe mechanisms here in our world, in, in the default world here, that that doesn't get to the point where you are your own last hope. And that sounds very dreary and dramatic and and uh, death-defying. But I don't mean it to be in, in that dark of a sense. But when you're on the road traveling somewhere, you but you are all you've got, right? You've got research. You've got your research that you've done before you got there. And then when you get there, some of the research may have panned out. Some of it might be wrong. But you must get yourself out and enjoying all the while. Because it, the purpose is not to be a death march. The purpose is to see a lot of cool stuff and jump some beautiful roads and meet very cool people and drink beer. That's <laughs> really what the international We have to add that to the... That's, that's what traveling around the world is yeah, all about. Yeah, have to tra- add that to the definition of travel. <laughs> Back when you were planning your trip, uh, this was before, by the way, that uh, Long Way Round was done, that Ewan McGregor and, and Charlie Borman did their trip that became so famous with the television series. Um, did your friends and family look at you and say, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Hey, Renee, what's going on with you? You know, did you, have you, have you, you done something, you know, is something wrong with you? Did they ask you these questions? And Whew. None of them questioned me on it. I have a history of biting off things a bit bigger than myself and then trying to chew it thoroughly. And none of my friends actually questioned um, doing a big trip like that. A lot, they were all very supportive. Um, there, there wasn't a lot of people that had done it by that time. I mean, so if you think back, this is 2002, where a lot of the prep work is now going on. I, I left a year and a half before Ewan McGregor and Charlie. So so the world hadn't seen the long way around. The adventure motorcycling world, although it has always existed, was still sort of an esoteric bit of fringe guys who would who would ride older bikes, sleep a lot in tents, and they wouldn't they didn't really exist on the radar very much. And so maybe they maybe if if this trip started after the long way around to come out, they my friends would have a bit more idea, better idea of what it was all about. But, um, no, they were all supportive, actually. They were all supportive. Yeah, there's a, a lot of media out there, especially nowadays, that is telling you why it's dangerous to travel to one place or another, um, places that you should stay away from. I mean, if you were to look at Mexico right now, the, the general uh, opinion, I think, that if you were to survey people is that Mexico is a dangerous place to go to. I mean, I hear people say it all the time. Uh, don't go there. People would die. Yet, if they did, I mean, the country should be empty at this point um, at the rate that people have said that it should happen. Yep. 
we get that a lot. And of course, we we tour in Africa, right? And, and a lot of the news that you get out of Africa is uh, miners are on strike and there's people being killed. And and then, uh, yeah, but then I read the Canadian news and uh, geez, there's lunatics in Moncton, which, which is where my family, my father's family is from. And so it's, uh, it's all over. We, we don't pay too much attention to the, to the, to the media, actually. And, and for folks who are planning a big trip, the first thing I tell them is just get rid of your TV. Sell it and, and put some cash in your traveling fund, but get rid of your TV. It's not, it's not there to help you at all. Renee, in your book, you talk about um, when you first started to get ready for the trip and you planned to sell off all your gear and raise a certain amount of capital, which was going to fund your trip, and you figured out how much you needed and how far you thought it would take you. But the big the big wake-up that you had was when you went to sell your gear, and uh, the plan didn't go as, as you'd thought it would. You didn't get the amount of money that you thought you would for your gear. You got far less. Um, at this point, the plan starts to fall apart before you've even started. How do you handle that? Yeah, the, the selling off of, of goods was, was very, that was probably lesson number one of, of this big trip. I knew that I would learn things on this trip. How could you not, you know, if you were open-minded and, and, and pondered and um, reflected on what was going on in this big trip? I didn't expect the lessons to come so quickly, though. So when I made the decision to start selling stuff, there was a few things that, that were quite startling to me. A, the stuff that I bought was worth very little compared to what I had paid for it. So I had a lot of skis and bike stuff and motorcycle stuff, and I'm getting pennies on the dollar or, or, or less than half of what these things were that I paid new for. So that was very interesting to me. I also realized I had a lot of crap. Like, man, it just never ended, right? The stuff just collects in, 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 in cupboards and, up, and above the bike in the garage and underneath my bed. And I was dragging around boxes of crap from from house move to house move to house move christmas cards from people i didn't know who they were uh, boxes of stuff and i and it felt so good to purge that that was that was lesson number one man i've got too much crap in my life and and i'm not getting anything for it so i'm going to start buying new stuff from now on and buying less of it that was the other thing so my even now that um Actually, even, even now to this day, it works out very well for us because we travel so much, we've got one suitcase seized. Mine's a little bit smaller. I typically travel with a carry-on size, but all of my clothes are in there for the entire year. And when we go into the winter season, we go, we go and we pick up some warmer stuff, and then we come out of the, the winter season, we give it to goodwill. So even on our, when we were in Africa, I'm on the road for almost five months there, but I, I travel, my clothes are in a small carry-on size of um, luggage. And then when Colette and the baby's got another big piece of luggage, of course, there's two of them in there. But if, if she wants to pick up a new shirt or a new pair of pants, well, something that's in that suitcase must go. Right? It's, it's a non-negotiable kind of thing. There's just no room for, for new stuff. And, it, and it's actually wonderfully restricting on our stuff. It, it, re, it eliminates impulse buying. And, um, and it, it's a nice reminder that we don't really need this stuff. I'm not sure. You might want to get her opinion on whether it works the best for her, but it, it works pretty good for me. I've, I've tried broaching the subject of wouldn't it be great if all three of us could use one suitcase, but that didn't go over very well. And so I've, I've stepped back from that one. When you started out on the on the adventure that you write about in your book, um, you were relatively a novice motorcycle traveler. How did your perspective change? And, and boy, it must have been daunting looking at the whole thing. I mean, it, it'd be scary, the, the, the whole prospect of traveling around the world. 
when I go back and I read my diary about about when I first went into Mexico, so I'm a, so I'm a, I'm a very green traveler. This is my first time going into a country that doesn't speak my language and uses different money. And my diary was was actually quite interesting to read again because it's filled with lots of exclamation marks. You know, oh, I almost, I almost saw a dog get run over, and I, I heard a life is worth five bucks down here. And and you know, by the end of the trip, uh, four and a half years later, the, those little things would have never entered into my diary they wouldn't they i wouldn't have um well the, the life worth five bucks type of thing i would have ignored that as nonsense and if i saw a dog that was run over i wouldn't actually have put it into the diary it wouldn't have seemed to me to be noteworthy you know i, I would be talking more about recipes or cool food that i ate or beautiful road that i'd seen but early on you are so right that um we're all a bit freaked out. I mean, we don't have, we have no idea what to expect. And and that's terrifying at times. And I think it's, I think it's disingenuous for folks to pretend that it's not terrifying because it is. And, and I make a point of telling folks that in, in the presentations, if you're new to this adventure motorcycle lifestyle, it's okay to be terrified. And everyone in this room has been terrified at one point. It's just that after it's all said and done, it's easy to laugh at. And if new people see that the laughs are coming around the stories about, you know, really tricky passes going up or tricky passes coming down or sand or water crossings. If they see other people talking about that sort of cavalierly and without pause, they might identify that wrongly as being, you know, geez, you should be okay with crazy hills going up and down and water crossings and sand spots. And I tell, I remind folks that, geez, no, we're all terrified at some point. At most points, actually. <laughs> Especially if you're in a new country, because then you have all the all, all the things that make you worry about the riding. As far as you know, am I able to do this? Am I going to fall? Am I going to crash? What if I get a flat tire? And then you compound that by throwing you into a place that doesn't speak your language, that uses different money, that your cell phone doesn't work in, and that can be quite stressful. Back when you started planning for this trip, the internet wasn't developed in the way that it is now, so the information wasn't as easily available to you. The task must have seemed enormous with many different things that you had to figure out, visas and packing and selling your gear. What method did you find worked best for you to help keep yourself organized and on track as you went through this planning process? I'm old school, you know, from the daytimer days. And so everything for me was just written on written on lists and slowly crossed off. Um, I didn't travel with a computer for the first two and a half years, and it's all in written journals, the things I needed to do. And then when it was done, scratched off. Very very straightforward and uncomplicated. So no cell phones, no uh, PDAs. I mean, at the, at the time there was those palm little palm held held things. Um, but not, none of them. Was there a point in your planning process where you found it almost overwhelming? I mean, you had the problem with not raising as much capital as you thought from selling your gear. You ended up with a bullet hole in your in your motorcycle gas tank in the desert uh, as you're getting ready to go on this trip. Was there a point where you questioned it and said, what am I doing? Is this insane? No, but, but you know, by the time... By the time the trip had started, and I was moving from Colorado Springs back to Vancouver to sort of officially start the trip type of thing, um, that's when the, the bullet thing occurred. I had already sold my belongings. There was no house to go back to, so it was impossible to, impossible to be homesick because there was no home to be sick for. So even if things went a little bit sideways, um, 
I had sort of cut off, um, I had cut myself off from not doing the trip. Right? I, I bought the bike, I bought the big cases, those big tanks I bought. Um, the carnet, which is the, the paperwork for the motorcycle, that was an expensive thing. I, I arranged that. So I had kind of started myself down a path where it wasn't possible to stop it. Well, I mean, I suppose I could have if I wanted, if I really, you know, if my if my folks had gotten sick, deathly sick, and they need me at their bedside or something, you know, of course I could have stopped the trip. But barring that, there it was sort of set in motion, and um, I was just along for the ride by this point, literally and, and figuratively. So by the time the trip was started, even that little um, bullet hole thing couldn't derail it. You know what the bullet hole did though is that. It was the first time when I, I had an unexpected expense for the trip. And those big tanks, they're, they're from a company called TourTech that makes a lot of cool stuff for bikes, but they're bloody expensive. I mean, at the time, I think I paid 2500 for the kit, which is the two halves of the tank plus a seat and all the hardware. And, and $2,500, that's a lot of money for me now. And so I, I phoned up TourTech and I said, listen, I've got a very unusual problem. I've got this thing. It has a bullet hole in it. And they, they, they came back to me and said, listen, we, we, can't, uh, we can't fix it, but we can sell you another one for, for a great price. How about 700 bucks? I'm thinking, man, 700 bucks, that's still, that's a colossal amount of money. So I told them no. And I went to Vancouver and I, I searched out a guy who could do some plastic welding. And we patched it using some sort of plastic and a heat gun, sort of a heat knife, and we kind of melded in a patch and then put JB Weld over top to, as, a, as a, a source of strength. And that patch has lasted till this day, so it's been on there for, for a decade or so now. Um, but it was the first time that I recognized myself, uh, I cannot replace things new anymore. I need to fix it or repair it. And then a couple of months later, I was traveling in New Brunswick and I hit a deer and I hit, went over the bike and landed on my shoulders and, and wore out the top of this new Aerostitch Darien jacket that I had just bought. And again, I phoned Aerostitch and they said, listen, it's sorry, but you can send it back and have it repaired. It'll be whatever, three, $400. I'm thinking there's no way that I can spend three or $400 to get this jacket fixed. So I bought it. I brought it to a boot fixer, whatever they're called. And we, we found a black piece of um, heavy Cordura type of fabric and they cut it to fit and then they just stitched it on the back of the jacket. So in the pictures in the book, you'll see this, this big black patch over my shoulders that doesn't have any sort of symmetry to any of the other designs on the jacket. It's just a big patch to cover up where I've worn through the jacket. And that was a, that repair rather than replace was a theme that had to stay with me through the entire trip because the funds just weren't there to replace stuff that was going wrong. And I, I think that that's actually a very key point to folks who are traveling around the world and why I think that it's better to do this kind of trip on a, on a low to medium budget rather than a high budget. If I was a sponsor guy or like you and Charlie or um, Jim Rogers or some other traveler who's got very deep pockets or, or a large amount of support, a lot of the stress that is involved with traveling is about how to figure out how these mistakes happen or, or fixing mistakes, fixing motorcycles, fixing gear. And the easy way to solve the problem is throwing money at it. So if the bike breaks down in Buenos Aires, okay, bring it to the dealership. I'm going to go stay in the Hilton for two weeks. And when it's done, call me. I'll come pick it up. But 
for people on a low budget, which really is most of the folks on the road, or at least a limited budget, you sometimes have to walk up to the farmer and say, listen, hi, I'm Renee, I'm from Canada, I'm on a motorcycle trip, but I'm having some trouble and I need some help. Can you help me or do you know someone who can help me? And, and that's not fun to do. We don't like doing that. We want, especially North American guys, we want to sort this stuff out by ourselves. But we've unlearned that the rest of the world works by asking for help and giving for help, giving help. And um, we don't like doing that here for some reason. We, we want all the spare tools. We want all the spare parts. We want all the know-how to fix anything that could possibly go wrong with any of our stuff that's on the trip. But the rest of the world thinks we're a bit silly for doing that. Um, and when you're on a limited travel budget, you have to ask for a lot of help. And guess what? The help comes. And it's, um, it's one of those unexpected, lovely little lessons that, that uh, delivers itself to you day in and day out. Um, almost every day, something like that will happen to different degrees. Sometimes it's just directions. Sometimes it's a big one, like getting a motorcycle fixed or finding uh, a special battery for a camera or something like that. When you were first planning the trip, where did you turn first? What resource was available for you, um, what, and what did you ultimately use? Uh, so 2002, uh, Horizons Unlimited was growing slowly then, so, so that was a, a good place for me to spend some time. And as far as getting real-world feedback, the, the people that were on the road at the time were Chris and Aaron Rattay. Who, who were actually traveling around the world as a couple on two bikes. She was on a 650, and he was on a R100. And it was their advice, actually, that, um, that, I, that helped develop my budget and also helped determine that I should travel with two 650s rather, with that, rather than a 650 and something else. They were running into problems. The tires were different sizes. The batteries were different sizes. So they were, they were quite instrumental in reading their blogs and figuring out what was working for them and what wasn't working. Um, and then it's just a lot of guessing. You know, there, there, wasn't, um, there, there wasn't the resources. Then. But, but I thought Horizons Unlimited was, was key for that. You know, I would follow a lot of people's travels to find out where they were going and things that they were running into and problems with the bike. Um, um, so a lot of it came from there. And a lot of it is just being naive. Like I just didn't know all the stuff that you know. It's impossible to know all the stuff you you should know on a long trip. You get pretty good at it by the time you finish the trip, but at the beginning, you, you're sort of blind and wandering around. So, so a little bit of Horizons Unlimited and a little bit of um, current, at the time, Travelers websites was the source of my information anyway. Did you end up reaching out to the folks on Horizons Unlimited for help, or did you just do a lot of passive research reading through things? I I remember um, throwing questions on on which bike to take out of the two big bikes that I had had the R100 or the, the 1150 and uh, for the rest of it I was just sort of lurking in the different categories so lurking in the South American category what, what routes are people taking to go from north to south how are they getting around the Darien Gap how much is that going to cost um, budgets was a budgets was a a question that I just couldn't get a firm handle on. And I just decided, you know what, I'm going to spend as little as I can. And then that's, uh, I can't go any lower than that. You know, so I'll camp as much as I can. Um, I'll eat, eat in the markets as much as I can. I'll try not to spend money on, on other things. That was 
that was an important part, um, keeping the money that I had for the motorcycle trip. Because as you can imagine, as you travel around the world, there's some fantastic opportunities to do some really cool stuff. Uh, such as in Ecuador, uh, going to the Galapagos Islands, you can get a last-minute last, last minute ticket for a week for 800 bucks or 1000 bucks. That's a bargain. But it's also 1000 bucks. That's, that's almost two months of traveling out of my budget. So even though, and my, my university degree is in animal behavior, that, I mean, that, that place is, a, is, I've read about it plenty in, in my academic time. But I, I decided, you know, the money must be used for the motorcycle trip. Same for when riders get down to Ushuaia. That's where the boats for Antarctica leave. You know, your last minute ticket, your 2000 bucks. What a bargain. 2000 bucks, 10 days in Antarctica. That, that's a that, that's a five to $10,000 trip if you're to fly from Canada and do it. But again, I, I just had to remind myself that I had a li- limited amount of money. And that limited amount of money is going to get me to see cool stuff around the world, but it'll have to be on the bike. If there was some sort of magical way to go back in time and visit yourself as you were preparing for this trip originally, what advice would you give to yourself? Whoa. Um, I would, uh, well, one of the things that I've realized is there's, there's no perfect time to take a trip. That, that's, a, that's a big one for me. There, there's not going to be a time when, when my planets aligned and I had the correct bike with the correct helmet and the correct jacket and the correct boots and the correct camera. That stuff doesn't exist. And, and, and once you leave North America, nobody cares what kind of stuff you have or what color your bike is or which version of your MacBook. That, that stuff is, is, is completely inconsequential. We think it's important because we're surrounded by people telling us it's important while we're here. But once we leave, you get this glorious weight off your shoulder and nobody cares about your stuff. So that's one thing. There's, there's no good time to leave. You just must leave. Um, the other one uh, I thought about, buy nothing, buy nothing in the two weeks before your trip. Because all of that stuff, all of that stuff that you buy in the two weeks leading up to the day that you leave is I, I call fear gear. And it's all the stuff that you're convincing yourself that you're going to need, but you don't need. You're reading it on the internet. You read, you read that some guy or a ride report, some guy that came across a downed tree. And so you go out and buy a saw. It, and, it's, and, and it ramps up exponentially before you leave. I, I left with a saw, a collapsible saw. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking about what I was going to use it for. But, but typically that last two weeks worth of purchases are – you read something, you freak out that you're not going to be ready to handle that, whatever situation is going to be, so you're going to bring it. A butane torch, a, uh, a magnifying glass, a extra tarp. Um, you, know, you just have to trust your packing and realize that you've got half of it wrong, you just don't know what half, and you'll figure it out on the road. I know you're a bit of a, a BMW fan, or at least I think you are. Um, you chose a BMW F650 GS Dakar for your trip. What made you decide on BMW, and why that model in particular? Yeah, so the BMW thing, the first time I saw BMW, when I, when I moved to Vancouver, I, I took an external studies course with Simon Fraser University, and we went to Kenya to study animal behavior and evolution and wildlife management and archaeology, as, a, as an external studies program. So 60 kids in their, in their early 20s, late teens, um, and we lived in the national parks, and, and we were under a tent, and we had the overhead projector with a generator. It was fantastic. We were taking four-credit courses there. 
And we're, of course, crammed in this big group into a dozen or so little white minivans, and that's how we climb through the parks and we go see the animals. And, and while I was stuck in those vans, the other way comes these way overloaded BMW bikes. And that was the first time that I'd actually seen a motorcycle being used for travel rather than, you know, on the track or Goldwing or a Harley or that kind of stuff. And, and that stuck with me. So the first time that I had had money to actually buy a motorcycle, which is years later, I bought that same one that I saw in Africa, and that was the R100. So my allegiance to BMW started a sort of a emotional connection, a sort of this romantic connection to what bike was being used. And then it has stayed with BMW because there just hasn't been a reason to switch. And, and my BMW allegiance is, is uh, unscientific, unrational, un substantiable, um, but the bikes have worked great for me. So there's, um, there's really no need for me to switch. It would be nice if I was to go around the world again, I, I would take that same middle 650 that I used the first time. I would, I would, it needs a bit of work on the workbench, of course, but essentially I've spent four and a half years learning how that thing works. And although I'd love to, to try KTM and Honda and everybody else, th that learning process must be done again on how do you do the valves and how much does it take and what special little tools do you need to do all of that stuff? Um, and of course we, we ride BMW in, in, uh, in Africa and the bikes work well there. So the, the BMW is, um, you have to take, you have to choose something. So that's the one I've stuck with, but it's worked very well for me. On your BMW F650 GS, what modifications did you do uh, to make it worthy for the trip, at least in your mind? The bike itself is remarkably stock. It's, it's a 2003 model, and, and a, the biggest change to, to the exterior of the bike is the addition of these extra fuel tanks. So the fuel tank on the stock bike is 14.5 liters, and that's underneath the seat, not in the, the typical spot where most gas tanks are. And I didn't know how much fuel I would need. It's one of these things where you just kind of guess and you let fear be your guide. So the, the bike itself, the big gas tanks, it raises my capacity from 14.5 liters up to 36.5. Um, I added some PIA headlights, some PIA 520 headlights to um, driving lights to the front of the bike. TourTech, uh, I did a lot of shopping at TourTech, actually. The tanks were from TourTech. My tank bag was from TourTech. The panniers on the back were 41-liter panniers from TourTech. The dry bag, uh, extra-large Ortlieb dry bag, probably my favorite piece of kit. And um, a handlebar extension to bring the handlebars up a little bit, and a peg relocation kit to bring my feet down. I'm a rather long-legged fella, so um, I needed a bit of extra room in, in the cockpit of the bike, so to speak. And that was really all of the changes. I'd made a homemade radiator screen, I had made a homemade tool kit that, that lived um, behind the front wheel attached to the, the main down tube of the bike. And, um, geez, you know, that, that's it. No changes to the motor and limited changes to the, to the suspension of the bike. I had increased the weight of the oil in the, in the front forks, um, and I changed the spring to a progressively wound spring. And that's it. So which of those modifications that you did would you do again? Okay, so um, the, the things I would do, to, it would depend if I had to pay for them or not. So the, the, the way that I look at things now 
my traveling budget is 25 bucks a day. If I have to pay something or modify something for $100, that's going to be four days not traveling for me. So which, which would I rather have? Would I rather have this change or modification or thing that I'm going to buy for $100, or would I rather have the four days on the road? And most often, that question is answered by taking the time on the road. So these gas tanks that I have, $2,500, um, would I rather do that again, or would I rather stay in South America for four months? I'll take South America. And, and almost always that decision goes to the traveling time. So it becomes, like I said before, it becomes less and less and less about the motorcycle and having the latest and the greatest and more about how can I continue exploring um, and living in this awesome way about getting up and camping and new vistas and new towns. And um, The headlights I wouldn't do again. You know, that was probably 500 bucks and it increases the risk of electrical gremlins which I don't know anything about, electricity, as a general rule. So I wouldn't do that. And the bike comes with a perfectly good headlight um, to begin with. So I wouldn't do the lights. I wouldn't do the tanks. Um, but the, and, and the panniers on the back, 41 liters per side is way too much for, for, uh, for long-distance traveler. I think I would cut that in half. Because the, the rule with those panniers is whatever size you have, they're going to be full. So rather just like collectinized packing system, force yourself to take less. I would take a 25 liter or 30 liter, 30 liter per side. Um, the Orthe bag on the back, I would keep that. Uh, that's one of those must-have items, that big dry bag. And, uh, and there's really no other change to the bike. Yeah, so I would go with the very stock, simple bike if you can find it. So if you're doing the whole thing again now, knowing what you know, what bike would you take? Would it be the same one or would you be opting for something different, something bigger, smaller, uh, or a different make? Well, it, it would depend if I'm traveling if my, um, alone or with the family or whatever, but if I was to travel alone, yeah, I would, well, I would just use the same 650 that I have. It still, it still runs. And people will often ask me, especially at the shows, you know, which is the perfect bike for me? Which is the best one? I just saw this thing on TV and, and I turn and I say, listen, the best bike to do this thing is when you own, right? So that doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a, a Yamaha Sika 750 or a BMW or a, there's always a guy in a Vespa going around the world. Take the bike that is paid for, that's insured and that you're comfortable with and then just go. We, people forget that, that the money for the trip is in one big bag. And, and the more that they take out of the bag for the hard goods, which is the, the bike and the helmet and the camera and the boots and the whatever, there's less left for the trip. But we've done a pretty good idea of convincing ourselves that in order for this trip to go, you need that bike and you need that helmet and you need that jacket and those boots and and whatever's left, that is what I have for the trip. And I tell people at the motorcycle shows, like I'm, I'm the only one in those motorcycle shows telling you not to buy stuff. Keep your money buy used shit, take the motorcycle that you have, and then put the money into the trip. And it's funny that I'll often give that advice at the BMW talks as well. And people will say, you can't say that at the BMW shop, right? They're paying for you to tell the audience to buy stuff. And I said, don't worry, because there's two things that no one ever listens to me on. One of it is, is take less stuff, take more time. That's one thing. And the other one is just take that motorcycle and that old shitty coat and those old boots and you'll have a great time because everyone thinks that that's great advice for somebody else, but their trip you see is different. 
their trip is is important and they're going in very strange places and, and funky places. So they'd rather have the feel good about having a new new jacket, a new camera, a new new um, new motorcycle. And I think part of that too is if you get into the sort of the you know these are normally conversations we have around the fire about midnight with, after a few beers, but if you think about why people will gravitate towards spending money on on the physical goods, I think it has a lot to do with with trying to eliminate risk for the trip or trying to eliminate things that are going to go wrong. There's already going to be a ton of stuff that are new and challenging. Why throw a used motorcycle into there? Why throw a jacket that might cease to be waterproof in there? And I think that's where the answer will come for why people like to spend money on um, on new gear before going on on big trips. For someone who has no experience planning a, a large trip like the one you've done and, and written your book about, where do they begin? What, what's a good starting place for them to get the experience they're going to need for that large trip? Uh, well, I, I think it can be quite easy, right? Go go to the the um, the tourist information places around their town and start start doing local trips to places that they've never been before, you know, and go out, stay somewhere overnight, and then come back. Um, you'll have packed, you'll have over overpacked, and by the time you get back home, you'll realize, geez, I didn't need that souffle maker, and I didn't need the um, waffle iron and the rest of the stuff that you thought you would need. Can you talk about visas and uh, what it's like to to go through the visa process? Yeah, the visa, the visa. Um, well, we're a little bit lucky on this side. You know, for, you know, for Canadian passport holders or American passport holders, pretty much all of Central and South America are open. Um, without a need for visa, with the exception of Brazil and Portugal, uh, sorry, Brazil and Paraguay, I think, for Canadians. But most of the time, we, we don't need visas. We just show up to the border and stamp, stamp, and away you go. And so it was, it, I mean, for, for traveling, for, for international traveling, people in Canada and U.S. Are, are, we're actually quite fortunate to be where we are because we have a whole other world that exists, you know, south of the U.S. that speaks another language, and if, if you want an introduction to, for international traveling, how cool is it that you only need to learn Spanish and you can travel all the way down to all of those different countries in South America, right to the very bottom of South America, and, and only have to pick up one language. Very little visa issues um, and very little logistical issues, just a little bit around the Darien Gap, but what a perfect adventure this whole thing would be. I mean, once you're traveling in other parts of the world, the, the language changes every country, the currency changes every country. That can be a bit more daunting. So, um, but for us, we're, we're, quite lu- we're quite lucky on that side. And there used to be um, sort of a confusing bit of paperwork called the carnet that, um, that you had to deal with, which is sort of a, a passport for the motorcycle, if you will. And, uh, and it has since ceased to be needed by by countries in South America. So you, as long as you've got a clean title for the motorcycle and a registration, then away you go. If you need insurance for that country, they'll make you buy it at the border, so you don't need to worry about that at all. And uh, it's made for adventure travel, I think, especially from here. Leave in the middle of summer, six months later, you're in the middle of summer down there. That's, uh, that, that's a trip that everyone should do, I think. Renee, in your book, you planned... Uh... Renee, in your book, um, uh, 
Renee, in your book, The University of Gravel Roads, you talked about border crossings and how you planned a full day for each border crossing, and that seemed to work for you. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, and and what advice would you give the listener for border crossings from what you've experienced in the world? I would sleep somewhere near the border, and then the next day, the next morning, use up my currency of whatever country that was with, with food or breakfast, or if I had much of it, I would put it into fuel and then get to the border early in the morning and prepare to spend the whole day there. And normally you didn't take the whole day, but you would pop out on the other side in the new country by, by midday or early afternoon or sometimes after an hour. You never know how they're going to go. And so you are always in the plus as far as time goes. Part of the problems with people in borders is that they want to get through quickly. And then that's when the bribing question comes up. That's a common one. Um, and that whole bribing scenario works on the premise that the guard thinks that he's got more time than you do, which is normally the case. You're on a two-week vacation. You've got to get into the next country and get to the hotel because you've booked it and the rest of it. But if you are lucky enough to be traveling with an open-ended schedule or with a, a massive amount of time, then a day at the border doesn't affect your overall itinerary at all. So if he's going to make you sit in the office and wait for the boss to come in while you, or you can pay the $20 for the special road tax that doesn't happen to have a receipt, um, wait, enjoy, you know, get something to eat from the local vendors, have a coffee, talk to people. Um, because the bribing thing screws it up for everyone that comes behind you. And, and uh, I'm not a proponent of bribing at all. And I think if you get to the point where you've, where you've got to be in there yelling and screaming and fighting, you're, you're screwing it up for all of the travelers behind you, actually. Some people like to brag about difficult border crossings they've been to and yelling at the boss and stuff. But in, in my opinion, that's, that's irresponsible travel. What about camping? You did a lot of camping on your trip. Uh, that was part of your budgeting. And how did you feel about camping when you started compared to after you've done it for a while? Did the, did your mindset change as far as setting up camp or finding a place to stay? Oh, I was terrified of it starting. And it was difficult to do in Mexico. And, and of course, I was nervous about sleeping outside and someone's land. So at the beginning of the trip, terrified of camping in, in unknown places, like poaching a campsite, for example. In, in a regular campsite, I wouldn't have a problem, but it was this idea of going to someone's house and asking to sleep behind the barn. That was that took me a while to warm up to. But by the end of the trip, I, I would feel quite happy putting up my tent beside the train tracks and sleeping well through all the night. That just comes with practicing it. And, and most people are very happy to host you or let you sleep somewhere. But the camping is, I think the camping lends a nice angle to big trips and, you know, an occasional, occasional stops in a hotel to do laundry or to have a good hot shower and, and shave and make yourself feel civil again. But I'm a big fan of camping, so um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a hardship for me. I quite enjoy it. Renee, if I was sitting around a campfire with um, your friends and maybe your family, and I asked them, what has changed in Renee Cormier from before the trip to the guy who came home after the trip. What do you think they would say? Oof. I would think they would complain that I wear the same thing every day now. <laughs> so, um, Which is true. <laughs> so personal hygiene is a problem now. 
this my my definition of acceptable hygiene is broadened significantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, I don't know what they would say. I, I think that um, I'm, I'm less I get less stressed about things now. I, I'm not as uh, I don't get too panicked about uh, about problems. Um, they they are just there to get sorted out, and we just need more information to sort it out. So I think that's probably a big one. Uh, I'm less stressed. Um, I'm certainly not fussed about money issues, those types of things. One of, one of the benefits of living on $25 a day for so long is that that you get very comfortable not having anything. You know, and so our, our physical, we, we don't have very many physical things, our, our little traveling family. But we also don't measure our ego or self-worth through that. And, and that, wouldn't have, that would have been a very difficult lesson to learn without removing yourself from that situation for a number of years. I don't think I would have been able to do it, actually, to be honest, if I stayed with my, my rock shops job and I lived in a house and I want my grass to be greener than the neighbors and I want a vehicle that is from this decade. Um, because this world, that's how this, our consumer world works. And, uh, it, for me, it needed me to be away from it for a long time to be, to, to grow a thick enough skin so that when I do come back, I'm really not that fussed about it. I know you're running uh, trips in Africa now, taking people out on motorcycle adventures in Africa, and that's a big part of what you're doing, uh, I understand, it's six months of the year. Can you tell us about that and uh, what it involves? Sure. Well, this is, um, it's, it was morphed, the, the company started when I, when I finished the big solo trip, and I, uh, I flew back to Cape Town to visit a girl that I had met there. And, and we had this, while I was in Cape Town a couple of years before, we had this little romantic fling, but it was never supposed to go anywhere, right? I, I live on the other side of the planet. At the time, I still needed to travel for a couple of years. So we, we when I left, that was it. That, it the thing was going to end and fizzle out, and that was that. But the, the relationship just never stopped. You know, we kept emailing back and forth and texting. And so two years later, when the trip finished, I figured we'd got to sort this out, either 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 this thing goes or it doesn't go, but we must make a decision. So I flew back to Africa to, to court her, Colette, and uh, while we were there, I, I ran into another guy who who I knew who was telling me about these motorcycle trips that he had just done for his friends in Namibia. Him and a bunch of friends went. And I just started thinking, you know, I'm sure I could get folks over in North America to to come over and do some riding. And Africa has a very big mystique about it. And so we gave it a go. We, we put one trip together, um, and it sold out. So we added another trip, and that was year one. And uh, now we're up to, well, next year we'll have seven trips. Um, we're, when we're sold out this year, with the exception of one or two spots. Um, so things have been going very well for that. It's, um, it's certainly much different traveling than what I was used to by myself. You know, the, I would travel on 25 bucks a day, and these trips are, are markedly more than $25 a day. But you also don't have to sleep in, under a bridge or eat tuna fish every night. It's a, it's, a, it's a rather luxurious way of seeing Africa, and it's fully guided. So the riders just come over with their helmet and their, their riding kit. Um, we give them a BMW on that side. We stay in very nice lodges, and we always do one camping night on the trips as well. But people can pick between gravel road tours or paved road tours, and any time between 
July and November we typically run, which is their winter going into their summer, which is a nice time to be there. Well, Renee, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us at Adventure Rider Radio. Uh, we're running a little low on time now, so we're going to have to end it here. I, mean, I could talk to you for hours uh, about this stuff. You're a wealth of information, and you certainly have some, some great answers that are thought-provoking and an interesting perspective on life. Thanks very much, Renee, and we'll have to talk again. My pleasure. My great pleasure, Jim. I've been speaking with Renee Cormier, the author of The University of Gravel Roads, Global Lessons from a Four-Year Motorcycle Adventure. I want to thank you very much for listening to Adventure Rider Radio. And please send us your comments. There's an email address there. Click on it on the website. And if you're interested in information about Renee Cormier, uh, you can find the links on our website to his website as well. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and I'm Jim Martin. Ride safe. Oh, and here's a quick note before you go. Adventure Rider Radio is looking for correspondence. So if you're interested in getting involved with the show in any capacity, um, be it uh, doing interviews or anything else, send us an email. The email link is on the website. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, this is Renee Cormier, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This is Dr. Gregory W. Frazier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.